you all sounded lovely in uh, in worship today. I think I tell you that a lot, but I I just I love uh, listening to God's people sing. It's one of the the joys of being with you, and it's one of the joys of being at the front and getting to hear all of your voices sing. Like, you know, they sound great up here, but you guys sound like Jesus' church. You guys sound like heaven, right, when you're all together. So it's such an encouragement uh, to get to listen to you. Whoa. We, uh, last week, we talked about, we began looking at the, the purpose of the offices uh, of Jesus' church that have been given to us. Uh, Paul outlines these offices in Ephesians 4, verse 11, where he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And so we've been talking about how from verse 7 to 11, Paul is talking about God's grace. And, and Paul talks about God's grace in the form of gifts that have been given to his church. And then in verse 11, Paul starts to outline those gifts that God has given, or some of those gifts that God has given to his church. And they are the offices of the church. And we talked last week about how all of the offices have different functions, but all of the offices have the exact same purpose. And Paul tells us what the purpose of those offices is in Ephesians 4, verse 12. It says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And we said last week that we can classify all of the work done in the church in the following way. That Jesus has given offices to his church that are meant to equip the saints, and then the saints do the work of ministry, and all of it, the work that is done for the saints and the work that is done by the saints is performed by us with the ultimate end goal of building up the body of Christ. That's what he says at the end of verse 12. And then Paul tells us what he means by that in verse 13. What does it actually mean to build up the body of Christ? And he gives us three measurements of a built-up body of Christ. He says, first, is that we all attain to the unity of the faith. And we talked last week about how we've received unity through the Spirit. It is the unity in the Spirit, and we're called to maintain that unity, but we're also called to attain it, right? And so there's this reality in our faith that through Christ, we receive things, but we don't receive them in their fullness. We have to walk towards that, right? In Christ, we receive salvation but the fullness of that salvation will be seen in eternity. And there are so many things in our faith like that. And so that's the first measurement of a built-up body is that we have this unity of the faith. And then the second measurement was that we have the knowledge of the Son of God. And I had said that Paul used that unique name for Jesus there, the Son of God, and he only uses that name four times in all of his letters, and it is because it is only through the power of the Holy Spirit that someone will declare Jesus is the Son of God. Right? The world has so many ideas about who Jesus is. He's a great teacher. He's a great prophet. Yeah, maybe he died on a cross, but it is only through the power of the Spirit in someone that they will declare Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then last measurement that Paul gives is that we all attain to the mature manhood or mature womanhood. And that measurement for that is Christ himself. 
It says we're all attaining to be like Jesus. And we talked last week about how that's not going to happen on this side of eternity, but we still walk towards it. We still press towards it, knowing that we will become like him in eternity. I'm going to change mics because this one hates me today so that you don't have to listen to that. Some days I have more static than others. I don't know. I'm a, a high static individual, apparently. I'm not sure what that is. Nick uses it all the time, and it's fine. Oh, there we go. I know, that's the problem. I move around too much for corded microphones. Uh, and so those are the three measurements. Attain to the unity of faith, attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, and attain to mature manhood and womanhood. And, and Paul continues, he says, this is how we attain to this. This is how we grow as a body of Christ. He gives us two ways that we grow, two factors that bring growth in the body of Christ. First is that we speak the truth in love. And then second, which is the most important, is that we rely on Christ as the source of growth. And so that's where we ended off last week. And so this week, what I want to do is I want to kind of press on this idea a little bit more of what it means to speak the truth in love, because it is an incredibly challenging thing to do in Jesus' church. And then we're going to look at the offices themselves, those, those five offices that Paul lists in Ephesians 4, verse 11, and understand what is the function of those offices. What is the role of them, and how have they played out in the history of Jesus' church? So last week, we looked at those three measurements of a built-up body of Christ. But Paul kind of gives this fourth measurement for a built-up body of Christ, which is the antithesis of the other three. And he gives this fourth measurement in Ephesians 4.14. So, in a way, Paul's saying, hey, in a built-up body of Christ, you want to see these three things. You want to see unity, you want to see the knowledge of God, and you want to see mature men and women. What you do not want to see is in verse 14. Paul says, build up the body of Christ so that we may no longer be children. You don't want to be children. Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So Paul says, in a built-up body of Christ, the, the childlike reality of people's reasoning should diminish. Now, that is different than what Jesus says, because Jesus says we are to have a childlike faith. We are to have a childlike trust in God, but we are not to have a childlike reasoning. You see, children are easily swayed. Children are easily convinced of things. You can lie to a child, and they will believe you. Let me give you an example from my own life. I think this is pretty mean. Uh, when I was a kid, I was watching a, a television show one day, a, a cooking show, uh, with my mother and my sister. And the woman who was cooking was very pregnant. Probably in her ninth month, she was about to pop, very big. And as a young kid, I was like, Mom, is she pregnant? You know what my mom said to me? No, she's not pregnant. She swallowed a watermelon. I, yes, Lydia, I believed that. I was young enough, I, I remember sitting there and being like, really? She swallowed a How did she swallow a watermelon? Oh, well, she swallowed the seed, and then the seed grew in her belly. 
That's so mean. So mean. I think I was 18. No, I'm kidding. I was way younger than that. I was way younger than that. Come on. But we, we are not to be like that, right? We are not to be children in our reasoning where we believe that a woman swallowed a watermelon. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, he said to them in Matthew 10, 16, he said, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Jesus warned us from the very beginning, you need to be wise because you are sheep amongst wolves. And we have an enemy that wants to fool us. We have an enemy who is the king of deceit and the king of lies. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You know, we often forget about that as followers of Christ. Like, we don't often think daily, like, wait a second, my enemy is actually prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I better not be that easy prey. See, we're going to come up against lies from people. We're going to come up against human cunning. We're going to come up against deceitfulness and all of these things that Paul lists here. But what we have to remember is ultimately our fight is not against flesh and blood. Our fight is not against that person or that group or whatever it may be that is spewing lies. We must defend against the lies. We must stand firm against the lies. But our fight is ultimately against the power that lands behind those lies. Because when you see human deceit, as a Christian, you need to recognize there's more going on there. There is more going on there. There is a father of lies that uses fallen humanity to his advantage. And so we recognize those lies, but we know that our fight is against the devil. And listen, the devil is going to go for easy prey. The devil is going to go for those who are children in the faith. Now, when I say children in the faith, I do not mean new Christians, I do not mean new Christians. I mean Christians who have not matured as they should. Here's the thing that's not in Scripture. You're not going to see this, but from my experience and what I've spoken to so many followers of Jesus, I just think is true, is that when someone comes to faith in Christ, God just covers them. Right, God, there's just this, this season of time where God just covers them. He is so over them, like a, a father with his young child. Right? When you have a baby, like you're protective of that baby. You're constantly carrying that baby. You're always with them. And as, as, you, as they grow, you kind of back off a little bit, back off a little bit, give them a little bit more space. And I just think God does the same thing with us. Again, I'm not saying that's scriptural. I'm saying that's what I've experienced. And that's what so many people have experienced. He's just, he kind of backs off. He goes, okay, you're, you're old enough. Like You kind of like take it, go with it, run with it. And if we don't, if we don't take it and we don't go with it, we don't run with it, then we are not going to mature the way that we're supposed to. You see, we're not called to be like the world. You know what happens in the world, especially in our day and age? Worldviews are very wide and not very deep. Right? They're very wide and incredibly shallow. It's like, what is the new thing that I'm supposed to get behind? 
What is the new thing that I'm supposed to believe? And then everybody jumps on board. But if you actually have a conversation with most people and ask them, well, why do you believe that? I don't know. Well, can you explain it to me? Not really. Because beliefs are wide and they are not deep in the world. Shallow beliefs about many things make you a child in your reasoning. And we are not called to be that. We are called to hold to some truths very deeply that come from God's word. Paul says, rather than being children tossed around, we are to grow up. And the way that we grow up is by speaking the truth in love. We must speak the truth in love so that we can grow up. You know what else that implies as a follower of Jesus? Is that we have to be able to receive the truth spoken in love. That's not as fun. Like, I'll speak the truth in love all day. You don't have to speak it back to me. You know, there are three marks of immaturity when it comes to speaking the truth in love. And here's the reality of it. We will all be on this spectrum somewhere because we are all a work in progress. And so we're all going to struggle with something along this spectrum when it comes to these three marks of immaturity. So I just want to give them to you this morning. The first mark of immaturity, a mark that shows we still got to grow up in Christ, is that we cannot receive the truth in love. That is just a mark of immaturity. We are unable to humbly receive a spoken word from someone. We consider it unloving if it challenges us, if it rebukes us, if it confronts us in an area that we do not want touched. That's not a good word. That's an unloving word because it makes me uncomfortable. That's just a sign of immaturity in our faith. Instead of facing it, all we get to do is dismiss it. Well, that's not loving. And we can just kind of push it under the rug and not have to deal with it. And it allows us to remain in our comfortable rebellion. It allows us to hold on to whatever it is that we don't want to let go of. If we can just dismiss it, mm, unloving. That's just a sign of immaturity in Christ. Second sign of immaturity in Christ is that we're good at speaking the truth without love, right? You can speak the truth without love. That's the second sign of immaturity in Christ. We all know those people where it's like, bam, that might be right, but oh, that hurt and not in a good way. And then third sign of immaturity is we love without speaking the truth. Love becomes just this, this general idea. Right? You, you stay quiet about the things that matter. Or you affirm things that have people walking on a path that is damaging to them. And we call it love. It's not loving at all. But that's what we see a lot in the church today. We're just called to love. Just love. It's all about love. There's more to it than that. We are to love in a truthful way. That's what love is. 
not just affirming everything. And so how do we speak the truth in love? And what I would say is it comes down to our motivation. It comes down to our heart. It is not dependent on how it is received. Because if we measured it by how it was received, there's too many people who cannot receive truth and love. And so we cannot measure it by how someone receives it. We must measure it by our motivation. What is in our heart? What is the reason that we are speaking it? Am I just speaking it to be right? Well, you may be right, but you're not going to win someone over if that's your motivation. Am I just speaking it to prove something? Maybe you will prove something, but you're ultimately not going to win someone over if that's your motivation. Am I speaking it to look good? Again, maybe you'll look good in that moment, but you are not going to win someone over. The right motivation when we speak the truth in love is what Paul tells us in verse 15 and 16, to build up to grow the body in love. That has to be our motivation. I want to build that person up. I want them to grow in love. And so then what becomes our measurement for that? Well, I think a really good measurement is 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4 to 7. You know, we love to use 1 Corinthians 13 in weddings, which is nice. It's a nice, nice verses. But Paul's actually talking about spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of spiritual gifts and relating to one another in the church. So Paul says, starting in verse 4, love is patient and kind. We all know this. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So when we speak the truth in love, this should be our measurement. When I'm speaking that truth, am I patient? Am I kind? Am I speaking this because I envy that person? Or am I speaking it because I want to boast and I want to look good? I should keep my mouth shut. It does not insist on its own way. That's one of the hardest things. Love does not insist on its own way. We speak the truth in love, but then we can't like pull them and force them along that path. So here's, here's the truth, and I hope you walk it, but it's up to you to walk it. It's not up to me to force you along. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth, and so on. And so this is how Jesus' body must speak the truth in love. And this is how, and this is the heart by which all of the offices that Paul lists in verse 11 must perform their duties in equipping the saints. For me to just speak truth to you, it's not enough. It has to be from a place of love. I have to love you first. I have to love Jesus' body first to speak that truth in a way that will hopefully build you up. You may not like it sometimes, and that's okay, but hopefully it builds you up. And so that's the heart that all of ministry for the offices are done. And so let's do a hard shift, hard shift from speaking the truth in love to looking at each one of these offices and how they work in the church. 
Once again, Paul says in Ephesians 4.11, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And we're going to look at them in the order that Paul lists them, because Paul lists them in that order for a very specific reason. He begins with the apostles and the prophets, because apostles and prophets are the foundations of the church. Paul establishes this earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 2, verse 19 to 20. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So Paul is saying in the building of Christ's church, Jesus is the cornerstone, and then following Jesus is the apostles and the prophets who are the foundation, and then everything else is built upon their work. And the reason why apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church is because they were given a revelation from God that had not been given to anyone else before that time. That's what makes them unique. They were the first ones to receive that specific revelation from God. This is what Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, verse 4 to 5. Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So they have unique authority in the church as the foundations of the church, because Paul says him and the other apostles and the prophets, they received unique insight into the mystery of Jesus, which was revealed to them by the Spirit, which had not been previously revealed to anyone in history. And so this is one of the reasons why the apostles and the prophets in the early church had the authority that they had, though the apostles had more authority than the prophets. And we'll look at that in a minute. So let's look at what is an apostle. Well, the word apostle means messenger or sent one. So when we hear the word apostle in in the modern day church, what we most often think about is the 12 disciples of Jesus. They're the most readily thought of apostles in the history of the church, but there were many others in the history of the church. Paul and Barnabas were called apostles. In Acts 14, 14, it says, But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out. James, the, the brother of Jesus, is referred to as an apostle. In Galatians 1, 19, it says, But I saw none, other, uh, none of the other apostles except James, James the Lord's brother. And, and Silas, Silas is referred to as an apostle in 1 Thessalonians 2, 6. Paul says, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we would have, so though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. And he's referring to himself, uh, or he's referring to himself and Silas there, who was with him. So we know that there were a number of apostles in the early church, but we don't know how many there were. And the apostles had very unique qualifications. There were very unique qualifications to be considered an apostle of Jesus Christ. And Paul lists at least one of them in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And so Paul there is saying, okay, one of the qualifications for being an apostle is that you had to have seen Jesus. 
That was qualification number one to be an apostle. You had to have seen Jesus. And then we know from that that you also had to be sent out by Jesus as seen in the name apostle. It means messenger or sent out ones. So to be an apostle, you had to see Jesus, you had to be sent out by Jesus, and you had to be a foundational member of the early church. And that's what made apostles uniquely authoritative in Jesus' church. And one of the signs that always went along with an apostle, one of the ways that you knew that someone was an apostle of Christ is that signs and wonders followed them that Jesus uniquely gave them these gifts of signs and wonders. We see in Acts 2.43, says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. In Acts 5, verse 12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. And so the apostles were these uniquely called out men in early foundations of Jesus' church, given signs and wonders so that people would know they are Christ's, and they were the early builders of the church. And alongside the apostles were the prophets. And prophets were people who had the ability to speak inspired utterance directly from the Lord himself. And there's a few examples of this throughout Scripture. One of the things that a prophet could do was foretell the future. In Acts 11.28, we see an example of this. It says, And one of them named Agabus, who was a prophet, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Another thing that prophets were able to do was they called sin to account. 1 Corinthians 14, 24 to 25 says, But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So prophets were able to call sin to account in a unique way. They could look upon an individual or they could speak something that would speak directly to the heart, to the secrets that an individual had and cause conviction and those things to come forth and repentance in the Lord Jesus Christ. And also a prophet in the early church, one of their roles was exhortation, was encouragement. Acts 15.32 says, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And so along with apostles, prophets were foundational to the church, uttering inspired words from God. But as I said, they did not have the same authority as apostles. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 37 to 38, look what Paul says here. He says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So Paul is saying there, if someone claims to be a prophet, if someone claims to be spiritual, he must acknowledge the commands that the Lord gives through the apostles. 
He must recognize they are commands from God. If they don't, they will not be recognized as prophets. And so we see that while they worked together in the early church, the apostles had a uniquely authoritative position even over prophets. And then Paul talks about the evangelists. So there's apostles, there are prophets, and then there are evangelists. And evangelists are basically itinerant preachers. They would be modern-day missionaries. They are the people that go out into new areas to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to places that have not been spread to before. And there's only a couple of mentions of evangelists in the New Testament. They're mentioned once in Acts 21, verse 8, where it says, On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. And we, of course, know Philip. Right? Philip was the one that went and baptized the eunuch and then poof, went somewhere else, just found himself in another location. Second right? Timothy 4, 5. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So these are the only two times that evangelists are mentioned in the New Testament. But these were men who were uniquely called by God to go into new spaces, to go into new places, to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring new converts. And as I say, it would be the same as modern-day missionaries that go to new places that have not been reached yet. And last, Paul lists pastors and teachers. Now, in some of your Bibles... It'll say pastors and teachers, and it'll look like they're separate. But in the original Greek, the way that Paul listed it is he linked those two words together so that pastor and teacher were actually the same office. They are not separate offices. And we can see it really clearly if any of you knew King James Version of the Bible, if you like that version, it does a good, good job of translating it. It translated, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. And so it gives that unique separation of some of these, some of these, some of these, some of these, and some pastors and teachers, showing that it's the same office. And this is the office that we know the best. Right? This is the office of the local church. These are ministers in the local church. Um, pastor just means shepherd. And they're one office because, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, a pastor or a shepherd must be able to teach. It is one of the qualifications of being a pastor or a shepherd. And you'll notice that God's people are uniquely gifted in different ways. You will go to some churches where that pastor will have a uniquely strong shepherding gift a uniquely strong pastoring gift. And then you'll go to other churches where the pastor will have a uniquely strong teaching gift. That will be the emphasis in that church. Neither one is wrong. Both of them are uniquely gifted by God, and both of them have to grow in that part that they're not as strong in. So you've been in our church for a while maybe. You probably have noticed I am stronger in teaching. That is my gifting, is teaching, and I have to grow in pastoring and shepherding. That is what I have to work more at. 
As I say, you go to other churches, you'll be like, man, the way that that person just pastors and shepherds is crazy. Come alongside people. So there's different gifts depending on the church, different emphasis, I should say. So these are the offices that have been given to Christ's body. What I want to just end with is talking about kind of how they work together, just very briefly, and kind of answer one of the questions that's always around is, are they still active today? Are all of these offices still active today? So the first three offices, apostles, prophet, and evangelists, are offices that Jesus gave to his universal church. They are not in one local body. They are for the universal church of Christ to build it up, very similar to modern-day parachurch ministries, right, that, that work outside of the local body. And then he gave pastors and teachers, which work specifically in the day-to-day building up of the local church. So the way that you can think about it is this. Apostles and evangelists, they plant the word. Prophets bring specific context and relevance to the word. And pastors and teachers are the everyday builders of the local church. Now, based on the qualifications of being an apostle, apostles ceased after the first generation of the church because you had to have seen Jesus Christ and be sent out by him. Now, does that mean that there is not men or women who have that kind of similar gifting? Absolutely not. There are so many men that I know that don't pastor in a local church, but have that kind of apostolic gifting where they go and they they build up churches all over the place and oversee several churches at once, similar to what Paul did. And so are there specifically apostles with the same authority? Absolutely not. Are there those with an apostolic type gifting? I believe absolutely there are in Jesus's church today. Prophets, prophets have continued in the church. I believe prophecy is still alive and well in Jesus' church today, but it does not have the same authoritative position that it had in the early church. And the reason is that as the New Testament was established, the written Word of God took the place of the spoken Word of God more and more, so that the written Word of God is our ultimate authority. And unlike in the early church, unlike in the Old Testament, we now test prophecy against this, because this is our ultimate authority. So that's how I kind of see it working in the church today. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is our ultimate authority. And I do believe, and I have seen, and I have experienced men and women that come up and just give you a word in a moment from the Lord, and it just cuts you to the heart, or it speaks to something so clearly going on in your life that there is no way that they could have known that that was happening. 
And so these are the offices that the Lord has given to his church. These are the offices that he has given to us. And he has given them us to build us up, to grow us, because he loves us. And they are integral in how he forms his church and brings us all to mature manhood and womanhood. So next week, a couple weeks from now, we're going to begin to look at what are all of the other gifts. We've looked at the offices, but what are the gifts that he gives that are needed in the offices and in every member of the body of Christ? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for how you have uniquely put your body together. I thank you for how you have uniquely gifted your church. And Lord, uh, just so grateful that you have made us all members one of another. There is one Lord, one body, one baptism, and we all work together to equip and to do the work of the ministry for the sake of building that up. And Lord, we know that it is through Jesus Christ that growth comes, that as we are faithful to do what you have called us to do, you will bring the growth because you have said that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not come against it. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And, Lord, I just pray that you continue to build this church up, that you continue to, to grow me in the giftings that I need to, to lead this church well, that you continue to grow the men and women in this church in the giftings that are needed to uh, equip and to do the work of the ministry in this church well, not just for the sake of those that are already here, but for the sake of those that don't yet know you for that man or woman or child who has not yet heard the good news of Jesus Christ, who needs to come and to know this amazing, amazing Savior. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for your mercy over each one of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you